Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 85, with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and myself, Chris Webster. Today I talk to Alan about an upcoming publication that will be published by the California Rock Art Foundation regarding the pointed petroglyphs of the Coso Range. Hey everybody, welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, and since you're hearing my voice, that means I'm interviewing <laughs> Alan again. So, Alan... Welcome to your own show. Chris, I, I love when we have the opportunity to get together and to, to do this kind of thing. It's uh, always a blast, and I think we enjoy working together. So it's it's really just an, an honor and a blessing to sort of do this kind of riffing together. Absolutely. I think, I think our listenership enjoys it, too. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Indeed. I think so. So... You know, we've missed a, an episode or two, but that happens. It's happening across the network, actually, because we are in the summertime for North America. And many of our hosts are are based in, in North America here at the Archaeology Podcast Network. And what do active archaeologists do in the summertime? Well, they get outside and they do archaeology. So sometimes podcasting has, of, to, has field to wait. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of field work. And, and depending on where you are, like some field work gets you know, slammed out over a very short season because there's a, there's a season coming up where you can't do any field work. So, you know, bear with us as we, we still try to create content and, and get some, get some good, good episodes out there. But occasionally we will run a, you know, a, an older episode into the feed. But to be honest with podcasting, we don't do that all the time because you can always go back and listen to whatever you want. 
So, so if we need to skip an episode, sometimes we'll just skip an episode and that's, that's how it is. It's, you know, we're all working archaeologists here at the APN. So we take that as it is. And speaking of working, Dr. Garfinkel, you have been doing a lot of work lately. And one of the things that you've got coming out is a new book based on an article you wrote a long time ago. Let's talk about what it is and then how you first got interested in that. Well, I think I've talked about this briefly, but in point of fact, just to turn a phrase, one of the things that's interesting about my research area in Eastern California, a place called the Coso Range, is that there's a um, assemblage of depictions of what might best be called projectile points. They're uh, obviously dart points. And they're shown either alone or attached to or in association with some solid-bodied or decorated animal-human figures. And this has held my interest for, Mm -hmm. what, nigh on 50 years. When I first saw the book of Campbell Grant from 1968, there's a page in there of these figures. And he talks only for about a paragraph, a few sentences about them. And I said, you know, those are rather interesting. And I bet if we put some energy and savvy, some scholarship into it, we might be able to date those depictions. They are realistic representations in some cases. You can tell the style and the form, and Mm -hmm. that's why it intrigued me so much. Okay. And how long ago was this paper that you wrote when you first started talking about this, if you can remember back that far? It was decades ago, many, many decades. (laughs) It was one of my early papers. I worked with one of the authors of the original Rock Art of the Coso Range that was done by Campbell Grant back in 1968. One of his co-authors, Ken Pringle, was with us. And when I came back into the profession after a 20-year hiatus, I looked Ken up and I said, Ken, I'm really interested in these depictions of these projectile points, especially in association with these animal-human figures. Could you take me around and show me? I want to photograph and uh, examine all of these that we're aware of. And he said, sure, I can take care of that. Well, that was many years ago. And I was extremely fortunate because at that time, I was able to move about the, the range the China Lake Naval Weapons Center range rather freely. Mm -hmm. That's changed dramatically. Sure. And as the years went on, the um, layering of security upped and the difficulty in conducting uh, any field work or even research has become exceptionally challenging for those Mm -hmm. who have an interest in uh, doing work in the COSO range. So, you know, fast forward to my continuing research, I didn't give up on the program. I wanted to identify all of those panels, all of those images that could be found throughout the base, the North Base mainly, but also Mm -hmm. at Little Lake, which is just off the edge of the base. And lo and behold, from just a handful of images – literally maybe 
six to 10, we ended up with over 100 depictions of projectile points that exist in the Coso range. Wow. Nice. That's really cool. And I think, you know, our longtime listeners to this podcast know exactly what we're talking about here, but for potentially new listeners, and it's just a reminder, can you tell us a little bit about the Coso people, you know, how, you know, the timeframes that we're talking about when they lived in the Coso range, you know, obviously we'll talk about dating a little bit later. Not rock art is notoriously hard to date, but you guys have had some success in that area, but maybe some of the, the, just an overview of who we're talking about and what time period we're talking about. Sure. Or periods. I'd be honored to do that. The Coso range is in Eastern California. It's in the Inyo Mono region. It's uh, right there, not far away from the town of Ridgecrest. Mm-hmm. And it's a million acres in size. The rock art itself is mostly in the North Base. And conservative estimates hold that there's probably a minimum of 100,000 images, individual elements that are on the rock art. Some indicates more like 200,000. The images are mainly on basalt. And what's unusual about Coso. All this rock art is concentrated in an area no larger than 10 miles by 10 miles, about 100 square miles. Mm -hmm. It dates from about, let's say, the late Pleistocene, let's say 10, 11, 12,000 years ago, all the way through historic times. Most of the rock art was produced during what we call the Middle Archaic or the Newberry period from about 2000 BC to about AD 1. And it appears that the rock art peaked, peaked in production during a period that uh, was in the Newberry and then went through a, a massive decline to about, let's say, AD 1000, where some of us believe that the area was abandoned. Now, why was it abandoned? A lot of different reasons, perhaps, but there seems to be a, a sea change or a f- series of coincidences that may have all interacted together. It appears some people believe that the Koso people actually hunted out or diminished the bighorn sheep to such a great extent that they were no longer candidates for hunting. Hmm. Also, that time was the introduction of the bow and arrow. And the bow and arrow changed the economics of using volcanic glass. Now, in the Kosos, it has some of the largest expressions of volcanic glass uh, anywhere in California. So we have a obsidian exchange system that exported that volcanic glass, that obsidian, from the desert, the Western Mojave Desert, all the way to the Channel Islands. And we found uh, bits of coso glass out of the Channel Islands 10,000 years ago or even earlier. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. There's a lot more so, to say, but that's little some some of those sound bites. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm just wondering too, you know, you mentioned the the area where the coastal rock art is that we're focusing on for this podcast and, and quite a few others actually, because there's so much to talk about. The area is relatively small in context of the eastern Mojave, right? <laughs> but the Koso people themselves it's, it's, it's tiny. Yeah, it's tiny, right? Right, but the Coso people themselves yeah, did tiny. they did they did they range all over the place, or did they tend to stay in this this area that actually provided them with a lot of resources? Well, believe it or not, the Coso range itself 
is rather resource deficient. <laughs> there ain't much to eat there. It's not much water there. Mm-hmm. And okay. the only thing they had that was perhaps a, a significant resource was the volcanic glass. If there is a signature or ethnic identification to the Koso people based on their rock art, they were a fairly insular group, as uh, Julian Stewart said in the introduction or preface to the Koso Range volume back in 1968. It was kind of an island of rock art. You know, it just sort of expresses itself there. What's unusual about Koso rock art is it um, depicts bighorn sheep predominantly, but also it's very naturalistic or representational. I would say over half of the images, you can tell what they are. You can sort of deconstruct and say, well, there's a person and there's a person chasing a sheep or they have a spear in their hand or a bow and arrow. Here's some quail. Here's some dogs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we're going to take that opportunity to take a short break and then we'll come back on the other side and get a little more into this book that we mentioned at the beginning of the segment. So let's do that and talk about that book on the other side of the break. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 85 of the Rock Art Podcast. And I'm talking to Alan about his latest work regarding these pointed petroglyphs that we talked about in the first segment. So you've put together with some co-authors a book published by the California Rock Art Foundation. First, who's helped you write this? Who are your co-authors on this on this work? Well, the co-authors are one of Professor Emeritus from Fullerton, California State University, Fullerton. His name is Bernard Jones. He's a tremendous researcher who's published extensively on work in uh, both the American Southwest and some of its relationships with Mexico. And he's also an artist in his own right, and also a very detailed scholar when it comes to shamanism. He um, actually was an apprentice to a uh, Native American shaman, and he's very, very knowledgeable about the whole practice and the whole uh, associations and cosmology and implications of what shamanism is for Native Americans. The third individual is Ryan Gerstner, and he helped with uh, some of the research at Little Lake, and uh, he just completed his master's degree at Little Lake, demonstrating, mm-hmm. or at least supporting what I would call the hunting of bighorn sheep with uh, a number of hunting blinds that exist there that are in association with uh, rock art panels there above the lake on the uh, Little Lake Overlook, which is uh, rather amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for sure. And so what prompted this publication at this point in time? I know you've had an interest in this for a long time, but but why now? You know, it wasn't anything that that I planned on developing. It was something that organically grew. It was originally going to be mm-hmm. an article and then it got too long to be an article. And then <laughs> as we delved deeper and deeper, there was more and more data and more and more visuals. Bernard Jones does uh, pointillism, as it's called. So he spends a tremendous amount of time replicating the images and studying them in, in, in very, very minute detail to pick up all the information, both surficial and almost the, the uh, faint images as well. And so as we began doing this, it became rather transparent that we were on to some incredible discoveries and they were very, very worthy of sharing publicly. And I had, I had the whole paper written about a year or two ago, what I thought was going to be an article that would appear somewhere. Bernard Jones came along, he read it and said, well, this is good, Alan, but I think I can make it better. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, give it a try. He and I totally rewrote the entire manuscript. Mm-hmm. And it went from, I don't know, half a dozen pages to about, I don't know, 40 or 50 pages long with maybe a couple of hundred minimum uh, references. And I think there's about 30 or 40 figures <laughs> wow. in this uh, pa- paper. So it, it got yeah. to be rather huge. Yeah. And very complex. Yeah. But it was an opportunity for us to sort of riff as I say, on imagery, animal, human imagery, some of the anthropomorphic imagery as well, and to examine kind of what the Koso people may have been thinking about and uh, delving into and what their religious precepts may have been involved with. How's that? That's great. Yeah. And One of the things I alluded to in the end of the last segment was about dating of rock art. And I know there's been some advancements and some things you guys are discussing in this book relating to the dating of some of these panels. Can you tell us a little bit about how you did that and what the results were? Well, we had some rather special circumstances here. First of all, because of the notoriety of COSO worldwide, this rock art tradition Mm-hmm. I had two different researchers who at different periods of time over the course of the last decade experiment using portable x-ray fluorescence and examine right. the glyphs and, and date them. So mm-hmm. the first instance gave me the actual pinpoint ages, plus or minus maybe 20% on a number of these images And then the second go around verified them independently and came up with the same chronology as the first one did. And they both used XRF, but their methodology was a a little bit different from from one to the next. But the actual sort of uh, hypotheses and basis for doing this was pretty much the same. What they did was examine the desert varnish, the iron manganese rich coating of the basalt. And they would examine quantitatively how much iron and how much manganese 
was in the unpecked rock. So mm -hmm. when you see a, a particular rock that has a, a petroglyph on it, they would date or get sort of a basis, a base date to examine that original. Then they would also then examine the interstices, the little dents in there to get a date for the actual production of the image itself yeah. from when it was pecked to when it was currently dated. So they would look at what's the quantity of manganese and the other trace elements in the actual image itself. Then they would calibrate that and they would come up with a way to date in a relative way, the image itself. And so both times, the dates, the calibrations, and the ages that were inferred were very reasonable. There was nothing crazy about them. In fact, they were rather consistent in either methodology. The results were, mm -hmm. is that the oldest petroglyphs were about 10,000 years old, and the most recent ones were a few hundred years old. Hmm. And the ones that were a few hundred years old were some of the milling slicks, the basin metates, that were superimposed or on rocks that were relatively, you know, still varnished. But these, these recent episodes are very light in appearance. Hmm. And the older images become darker and until when you find those that you can't even really see unless you have glancing light or a, a better eye to catch the differences in the uh, dimensions those are the oldest images that date between six seven eight up until ten thousand years ago and so wow this all was supportive and helpful and sort of led me on this journey of saying, wow, if all of this makes perfect sense, maybe we can cross-correlate what we're looking at. And maybe the, the native people, the Koso people, gave us a clue, a very nice clue, and thank you, Koso people, as <laughs> to the age for these projectile-pointed depictions or the ones that are adorning or adjacent to these animal-human figures. So when people began to look at these mm -hmm. and look at them closer, they said, you know, Alan, I think these are dart points. And I said, well, why do you say that? He says, well, because they're huge and because they have the form, the actual morphology and the basal morphology of a very characteristic point form that is a hallmark of the Middle Archaic or the Newberry period. Hmm. And I agreed. I agreed. I said, yes, I see what you're saying. So then we use a technique that David Hurst Thomas pioneered, where you can examine the base levels of projectile points and identify metrically what their morphology is. In other words, you can measure the angles of the base and if it's corner notched, there'd be a distal shoulder angle and a proximal shoulder angle. And you can see what the notch opening index is. And that is 
a way to differentiate different styles of points. And what we found is certain projectile points, especially in the southwestern corner of the Great Basin, are very, very temporally sensitive. They have only a certain amount of time that they were popular. And so one of the things we found was that what we call Elko points, Elko from Elko, Nevada, this Elko series of projectile points, and only the Elko corner-notched points themselves were the ones that were depicted in the uh, Koso canon, as it were. They only go between 2000 BC and about AD 1. Hmm. There is another style of point called a Humboldt or a Humboldt basal notched, and that's depicted much less frequently, but it overlaps with and is synchronous at the same time as the Elkos. And those date between 500 BC and about AD 800. So both of those points are depicted in these pictures. And those are the only style points that we see depicted and represented in the Kosos. And when those were dated using the X-ray fluorescence method, they came out to be, on average, there was three of the different panels dated, 2,800, 2,700, and 2,600 years ago. Hmm. And that's, you know, right there in the association in the right period of time of when these Elko points have been archaeologically identified, dated, and also dated through radiocarbon methods. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool because when you were telling that, I was actually thinking to myself, well, is it a possibility that later people – sort of revered the ancestors or the creators of these, I guess, more rare because they're, they're in a tight time frame projectile points and therefore depicted those on the rocks and the, the, the time frame of construction of the rock art and the actual use of the points would have been out of sync with each other because of that, that reverence. But it's awesome in archaeology when you can come up with two dating methods that agree with each other because <laughs> that is like, yes, you know, that, that is where it really hits and you, you can't deny that. Right. You might be like, well, I'm not no. so sure about this one and I'm not so sure about this one, but they both come up with the same answer that brings both of them into more clarity. Exactly. And what's yeah. even more interesting is this sort of development and, and usefulness of examining these projectile points led me to a better understanding of the entire mm-hmm. uh, rock art chronology for Koso. And so I was able to sort of examine them, examine the superimposition, their associations, the style, and use all of those various data sets to at least posit a working chronology for the entire Koso expression. Right. Awesome. All right. Well, with that, let's take our final break and come back and talk about a little case study and and some more stuff about the book on the other side. Back in a minute. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw 
coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 85. And we're talking to Alan about his book, Revisiting the Pointed Petroglyphs of the Coso Range. And Alan, right at the end of the last segment, we were talking about this nice synchronicity, so to speak, of dates from dating the imagery itself by what was depicted, and then also correlating that with the time frames that we know from other methods of the projectile points that were imaged. So l- looking at rock art, of course, is is technically archaeology. Studying rock art is archaeology, but a lot of people think of archaeology as excavation and, you know, other methods like that. Can you tell us how this kind of this research and, and these conclusions have kind of brought all this together? Yeah, thank you so much. You know, it's, it's, it's some, something I want to mention. Uh, sometimes rock art is sort of the, the ugly stepchild of archaeology. People say, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, on, it's only rock art. And so they say, right. you know, it's a, it's a great data set, but since you can't date it and since, you know, anybody's interpretation is, is a possibility – you can say whatever you want. Well, I don't, I don't believe that's true. I, I try to examine rock art through the lens of archaeology, but also through anthropology, through comparative religion, through uh, cognitive neuroscience, and using every possible avenue I can to elicit evidence and inference and reconstructions and, and, and better understandings of what we're looking at. And it turns out that this particular subject was one that kept on giving, <laughs> mm-hmm. as it said. It, it, it wouldn't go away. So the editor of the California Rock Art Foundation monograph series is Bill Hyder, William Hyder. He's a relatively well-known and prestigious rock art scholar. And uh, his specialty is the Chumash and uh, Chumash rock art the stuff on the coast and pictographs especially. But uh, he read the monograph, read the, read the draft, and said, you know, this is a fantastic thing you've written, but I have some questions for you. I said, could you, could you uh, answer these questions and maybe integrate this information with archaeology, dirt archaeology? And I said, well, what do you mean, Bill? He says, well, you know, show me some examples of how this rock art might uh, further inform or independently cross-correlate and amplify and help understand the archaeological record of Eastern California. And I said, mm-hmm. that's, that's quite a tall order, but I think I can address that. Well, so the first thing that I wanted to tell you was a funny incident. I went to the Society for California Archaeology meeting several years ago, and... What happened was a professor, Dr. Robert Yoey, who taught at uh, Cal State University, Bakersfield, and he sat me down and he said, well, look at this picture here. And I go, well, that's rather remarkable. What is it? He says, well, that's a, a rock plinth. It's a, it's a, you know, what looks like to be hmm. almost like a rock shrine. And we found the uh, cranial remains of a bighorn sheep sitting on top of it. <laughs> I go, What? <laughs> He says, yeah, it was at Rose Spring on the edge of the Coso Range. And at the bottom of it 
was a fire that was placed there with all kinds of boulders. And to add insult to injury, I found an offering of a Humboldt basil notch biface at the base of it. I go, give me a break. Is that really true? <laughs> he goes, yes. I says, well, that's, that's something we have to, you know, publish and talk about. So we did. We had an article in the Journal of California Archaeology about it. But thinking about this uh, more specifically, this is a perfect example of the ceremonial context and the religious metaphor as part of the archaeological record. Here's a bighorn shrine that uh, dates mm -hmm. to precisely this Newberry period. It has an example of one of the two types of projectile points that are depicted on the Coso rock art. It's also on the edge of the Kosos, and it has uh, two radiocarbon dates, one at the top and one at the bottom. And they date to about uh, 1,400 years ago or so, about the uh, very beginning of the Hayway and at the very end of the Newberry period. And okay. that's rather amazing. So there's that one for you. Yeah. Well, if you like that one, I've got some better ones for you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. It turns out that when I was writing my PhD dissertation, one of the things I wanted to do was elaborate or enumerate what was going on of religious importance in the Eastern California. And what I learned was by, you know, researching and reading many articles and many regional syntheses that in Eastern California, only during the Newberry and the related early Hayway period, were there burials, actual human burials, that had grave goods that actually were postured in a way that had artifacts independent of the actual burials and that accompanied the human remains. Hmm. And I said, well, that was rather interesting. So what I did was list them. But what I yeah. found was the human interments in the Coso range ranged from about, what would you call it? Let's say 500 BC in the middle of the Hayway period to about, let's say, AD 500. And mm -hmm. what did we find there? Well, in those... In those about, uh, let's say about a dozen burials where we have good data, the consistent offerings were projectile points. And those projectile points were Elko series projectile points or Humboldt basal notch bifaces. Well, that's rather fascinating because those are exactly the kinds of images that are on the stone panels in the Kosos. Yeah. Also, one of one of my most intriguing burials is this uh, burial that was found at Rose Spring. Rose Spring is on the edge of the Kosos. It was found during their excavation. It's a child burial. We don't know its gender. It was uh, tightly flexed, and it had a single Elko projectile point with it. But besides that. It had a thousand abalone ring beads. Wow. And it was in a shingled arrangement on his or her chest. It was like yeah. this was a very prestigious individual that must have been of great importance. 
And that is the richest burial ever discovered anywhere in the entire Great Basin. Wow. So there obviously was something going on in the Kosos that was very distinctive, very important, and religiously central to the way they were doing things and thinking about things during the uh, height of this Newberry period. Don't you think? Yeah. And that's really interesting, too, because, I mean, we see things like projectile points and and tools of somebody's trade, so to speak, and like grave goods and things like that around the world, right? We see, you know, people who are into into weaving and, and creating, having, you know, spindle rolls and stuff like that in their grave goods. But when it comes down to offerings and depictions in rock art and those sort of activities, it is really interesting to me to see something that archaeologists define as a tool, and a tool is automatically pulled down a few notches as like just a, a thing that you do other work with. But these were clearly given ritual and spiritual significance by these people in certain circumstances. And it's just really interesting to see that depicted in these different in these different ways. It's really interesting because we we almost never look at them that way. Just me as somebody who's a boots on the ground archaeologist, you stop and you pick down. I, I don't know how many Humboldts and how many Elkos I've seen <laughs> just like sitting on the ground in northern Nevada, right? They're, right, they're literally right. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And it's just they're everywhere. Yeah. And it's just like you never really think about them in that sort of context. I'm always thinking, okay, so where is the hunting blind? Where is the you know, what were they doing with this? But you're not thinking about it in that in that way, you know? Exactly. So, so I try I try to live a little bit in both worlds. And <laughs> for those interested in the hard science of it all, we've got, you know, extensive information about how to date the rock art, what kinds of projectile points are depicted, and mm-hmm. then what we found archaeologically during that same period that must have mirrored the kinds of activities and the theology of the Kosos during that same time span. Right. Well, just a teaser. One of the things I want to talk about during the next one was I, I, I was struck by something as I was reading a number of books. And most linguistic scholars, most people who are understand historical linguistics, would uh, perhaps agree that the Koso people were most likely of Uto-Aztecan affiliation. They were early people, ancient ancestors of what we would call the Uto-Aztecan linguistic stock. Well, when I began to study that, some of the uh, information on certain groups of Uto-Aztecans began to ring true. And a couple of the authors there talked about something which was called and this, this shocked me too. They called it an obsidian religion. <laughs> and I go, what the hell is that? An obsidian religion. And they indicated that a number of the deities, a number of the religious figures, and also the, the recognition of volcanic glass in terms of its value and merit and importance became centrally more than just technology, it had a theological realm. And so maybe next time we'll delve into a little bit of that. So there's a, there's a teaser for you. There you go. There you go. It, it's been a, a wonderful odyssey too, and a true, exciting 
journey to have an opportunity to study some of this stuff. And I'm blessed with colleagues who, who share my enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope uh, people listen to this podcast and enjoy what, what we've talked about. So as of the time of this recording, is this publication available or is it, uh, is it coming out soon? It's going to be out in the next, I'd say, three months. Okay, so we're recording this in early July of 2022. So if it is, you know, October. I'd say fall, <laughs> fall, of, fall of 2022, it'll be available. Okay. Awesome, awesome. It's in, it's in the final galleys right now. Okay, sounds good. Well, when that comes out, we'll be sure to mention it on the podcast and, and link to it all over the place. But it's being published by the California Rock Art Foundation, so I'm sure you can find mention of it on that site, which is linked in our show notes. So definitely go check that out. All right. Any final final thoughts on this that you want our listeners to know, Alan? Yeah. I'm really thankful that uh, Bernard Jones had an opportunity to work with me because he, he made the rock art images dance and sing because of his artistry. And I think you'll get a kick out of it because mm-hmm. his illustrations are drop-dead gorgeous. Awesome. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.